Hello and welcome to Reclaiming My Theology, a podcast seeking to take our theology back from ideas and systems that oppress. I'm your host, Brandi Miller, and as we get ready to take a break for the summer, I wanted to give you an episode to preview a little of where we're going in our next season on purity culture. I am joined in this episode by Dr. Amy Gillivine to talk about purity as a theological concept and principle. And honestly, it's such a treat and you can tell by how much I laugh during it. I'm also so excited to announce that Reclaiming My Theology is going to start doing live events. So mark your calendars for partnerships with Ern Kim Hackett and Liberated Together on July 16th in Seattle and September 17th in the Bay Area. In July, Ern and I will be doing our first Reclaiming My Theology live podcast recording about bodily autonomy called Your Body Is Your Own. After the general audience time, Ern and I will be hosting a half-day conference to pour into and engage with women of color. Tickets will be available for soon for both of those events, so come on out and hang with us. I want to, as always, shout out our Patreon supporters who make all of this possible. It's such a gift. Thank you to everyone who supports through listening, sharing, rating, and reviewing. We appreciate it so much. And with all of that exciting stuff, please enjoy, as I did, this conversation with Dr. Amy Gillivine. Well, I am really excited to have you on for a lot of reasons, but one just because I think that as I have engaged with your resources, they've made me more functionally literate and um, better at reading the text that I say that I love and that I've been taught to love, but don't actually know a whole lot about. And so I recognize that even as we have this specific conversation, that it falls into this broader space of talking about patriarchy, Christian purity culture, and all of the things. I say purity, I'll say purity in quotes even, uh, purity culture and all of that, and the ways that that impacts and permeates how many of us were taught to think. Um, that, that actually does a lot of disservice to the Hebrew scriptures, I think to Jewish people. And so I appreciate you coming on for an interfaith dialogue in the midst of all of the risks that that could be. So thank you for being on today. <laughs> Well, as for folks who don't know you, I ask my guests every time that we have an episode to describe themselves in this way. So I would love for you to describe what does it mean to be you? Well, self-definition is hard because what it means to be me in relationship to my children is different than what it means to be me in relationship to my partner or to my students or to people who read my books. Um, I have described myself as a Yankee Jewish feminist who teaches New Testament uh, to people who want to be Christian ministers uh, in Nashville, which is where I live at Vanderbilt University. Um, uh, I am a member of an Orthodox synagogue, but I'm not Orthodox in practice. I am a knitter. I am a ballroom dancer. um, I'm a mom and I'm a partner. uh, And I'm a Jew who spends most of my time talking about Jesus in the New Testament to Christians who want to know a little bit more about him. And I have dedicated my scholarship uh, to, to trying to get people to stop interpreting the Bible in ways that lead to Jew hatred, or sexism, or racism, or or ableism, or any of those social sins for which the Bible can be complicit, but Mm. should not be. I just love that I could ask a hundred questions about every one of the things that you just said and the ways that they intersect in such complicated ways. Even as you start off with, oh, as we think about intersectionality, I'm like, oh my gosh, all of those intersections create such a profound picture of what it looks like to exist in the world. I think especially for people who, like you, who are are likely very known in scholarly spaces, I love dimensionality a lot, because I think that that kind of even picture of how we think about humans helps how we think about the scriptures that we engage with. And so I think I just love dimensionality. And so I really appreciate that. And so as we start this conversation, I 
I, again, I'm going to keep saying the word purity in quotes because I want us to have a conversation in some ways about purity, because I think one of the things that I've been noticing is that as I have thought about how I think about purity culture, some kind of like epistemological like ways of knowing, I've realized that a lot of that Christians often, myself included in the past and probably in the present in ways that I don't know, have done some gymnastics and scare tactics to motivate people towards some kind of abstracted view of purity, which really just is this kind of line that people take from sin sends you to hell and hell's bad. And like, if you're pure, then you're not sinning. And then if you're not sinning, then you're good to go. And then like sex and sexual purity is like the worst thing, which is actually just like morality rather than actual purity. And so I would love if we could start with some definitions just to help people engage with what the heck purity actually is, because I think that that will actually help many of us unlearn some of the things that have been pretty toxic about purity in our lives. So could you give us a, a baseline on what is purity in the Hebrew scriptures? What does that look like? And maybe what do Christians get wrong about? Well, what of many things do Christians get wrong about that? When we're talking about the Bible, we have to distinguish between what we call ritual purity and what we call moral purity. Uh, the Old Testament, to use the Christian term, which I think is a perfectly good term for Christians to use because I think old is fabulous. I'm old and old is fabulous. Um, it ha has to do with, with uh, the body. Um, and unless you have leprosy um, or you're dead, you will be in, in temporary states of ritual impurity. Uh, if you menstruate, you are ritually impure. If you ejaculate, right, probably first time that word has been used on your show, uh, you are ritually impure. If you give birth, you are ritually impure. If you touch a corpse, you are ritually impure. Um, and people are doing this all the time. It's perfectly natural. Um, and then afterwards, you know, there are certain mechanisms, usually waiting until sunset and taking a bath. Um, you, you can regain your purity again. So it's a temporary system that everybody's in all the time. What does it mean? It means you can't go to the temple in Jerusalem and offer a sacrifice because to get into the temple, you have to be in a state of ritual purity. Okay. Why? Because ritual purity deals with matters of life and death. And when, you, when you're in, in dealing with life or not life, which would be menstruation, life that didn't happen or life that does happen, childbirth, um, you want to stop and think about that. So what do we do? Um, we look at menstruation, many of us, as, as an inconvenience, rather than we stop and think about, oh, this could have been a life. That's amazing when you think about it. Um, and that, that, that some bodies have the capacity to do that. That's so cool. Uh, we look at ejaculation. Um, well, I mean, think, I think most people who ejaculate, uh, this is male ejaculation, go, well, that was fun. Or on occasion, well, that was interesting. Um, but it's not, they don't go, oh, damn. Um, but it's still an issue of life or death. And, and that's amazing that bodies can do that. So you think about it. And if, and if you attend a funeral, you are in a state of ritual impurity. If you, if you, if you touch the corpse, if you're involved in, in shrouding it and burying it, um, you don't say, oh, okay, now I can just get on with my day. You say, this is a life that's no longer with us. Um, this is a body that's no longer animated. Let's think about that for a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, so ritual purity allows you actually to celebrate the body and what it does um, and take time out for the body. And there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah. If you're impure, you're just impure. So what? Most people are impure most of the time. And when Elizabeth gives birth to John the Baptist and Mary gives birth to Jesus, they're not sitting around going, ah, I'm ritually impure. Well, isn't that <laughs> terrible? They're going, oh. You know, friends are coming, they're bringing gifts, the baby is fine, and I don't have to go to the temple for another couple of weeks. Yes. There's nothing wrong with that. Something to be celebrated. What happens? What happened was that the language of ritual impurity, in effect, bled over 
into the language of moral impurity. And then people started thinking about, I'm, I'm impure because I've had quote, impure thoughts, mm-hmm. or I'm impure because I touched my genital area and it felt good. Mm-hmm. Um, and that starts giving rise to guilt and rise to shame and self-policing. And it prevents people from being honest about themselves, uh, from accepting their various thoughts, from feeling that the body is in the image and likeness of God in the temple of the Holy Spirit, to thinking the body is this, this thing that's not good, that's tempting me in all sorts of ways, and I've got to spend all my time policing it. Uh, and that's not a way to celebrate the body, which is in fact what ritual purity does. So now we have problems of metaphor. And for people today who are caught up in what sometimes gets called purity culture, their way of proclaiming their love of God is to say, I don't masturbate. I don't have lust. And I'm thinking, you poor person. (laughs) 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 That God did not give you the body as as some sort of testing ground or proving ground. And now you're supposed to police it. You're supposed to celebrate it. You're supposed to be able to look in the mirror and say the image and likeness of God. Mm. Right? That's so um, good. So purity culture, purity culture can be helpful in that it can keep people from saying, oh, one night stand's not a problem. Um, and I'm just going to do whatever feels good. Because I don't think that's a terribly good way of living. So I'm going to do whatever feels good. So I'm going to eat every single piece of candy in the house. So that's not helpful. Um, I'm going to do whatever feels good. So I'm not going to exercise it. I'm just going to sit like a couch potato and let my muscles atrophy. Um, So I do think we need to attend to the body, but I don't think it's a matter of policing. I think it's a matter of honoring to help the body do better what what it's made to do. Mm. Um, And I don't think God, I don't think the God of the Bible is really interested all that much in, you know, whether we masturbate or not, um, (laughs) or whether we look at somebody and say, hmm, attractive. Um, I think the God of the Bible is interested in making sure that how we treat others is with the respect with which we would treat ourselves and with the respect that we would treat God um, and that we would enjoy. I mean, if you can stop and, and, and consider the lilies of the field, you should be able to stop and consider the old good things that your own body does. Yes. (laughs) Which I've never heard before. (laughs) Right. I'm not saying that modesty is a bad thing. I think modesty is a good thing. That's what Adam and Eve learned was modesty. But there should come a time when you look at somebody else with stark naked and you feel no shame and you feel no embarrassment. And that's sort of like a recovery of the Garden of Eden before that fruit business. Mm. And that, if you have that blessing, if you have a partner with whom you can be so totally you without anything coming in between, you know, no, you don't need the lingerie and you don't need Clinique or whatever. It's just you stark naked. And your partner goes, you're beautiful. Mm. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Because you're looking at a permanent relationship and, and it's a relationship that will, it's not like I have regrets the following morning. It's an ongoing thing because that's what love is. God gave us that. Most certainly. And I think about how my generation specifically that kind of grew up in like the early 2000s kind of height of purity culture post the rise of the religious right and kind of the most, um, I'm going to call it the most pure form of purity culture, uh, that many of us were taught that our bodies were shameful, fleshy, horrible. And I think a lot of that comes from this misreading or reading of specifically 
Christian white evangelical reading of Paul and specific things that he says about the body as he's trying to make sense of what does it mean to be in this kind of inter-ethnic, inter-faith, figuring it out kind of community? And how is he making sense of Jesus in real time? Because I think about how I was often taught, well, I was taught two scriptures, basically. It was like Genesis 1 and 2, because you just need to like make sure that heterosexuality is just in there and the most important thing. And that like sex is set up in this like marital context in this way that like doesn't actually last more than like a few chapters <laughs> of the Old Testament. And, and that then it would shift over to these kind of first Corinthians five to seven, like your body is a temple without ever teaching us what the temple is and what that's supposed to do and what right. that would mean if your body was a temple and saying things about sexual immorality and purity, everything is permissible, permissible, but not everything is helpful or beneficial. And so I think there are some ways that many of us were taught these buzz scriptures, like you're talking about pulled with these, I'm going to call them like very far dotted lines mm -hmm. from the Old Testament to Paul. And so could you talk a little bit about how those kind of shape how we think about purity, temple, body? Because it seems like those things intersect in a really significant way for Christians who are trying to figure this out. Right. Um, if you be, this is a wonderful question to which the answer is somewhat complicated <laughs> as many things are, right? The scripture is messy. Um, it, Genesis 1 says that we are all in the image and likeness of God. So that's very body positive. You should be able to stand in front of a full-length mirror, stark naked, like you get out of the shower and you stand in front of a, a mirror and you say to yourself, this is the image and likeness of God. I actually started doing this when I was 18. And, you know, at that point, I can believe it. I'm now 65 and gravity has taken its toll. But I still do that because it gets me going in the morning. It also gets me laughing a little bit. It's a, it's a very, very positive body image. It's also a, a very moral one because it means everybody's in the image and likeness of God. You know, no matter what you look like and how old you are or how much you weigh or how many scars you have or what operations you've had or what you're all in the image and likeness of God. That's fabulous. What happens with Paul, as we skip over, you know, a millennia or so, is that Paul is convinced that the end of the world is about to come. Yes. That Jesus is coming back, say, a week from Tuesday. You know, but it's soon. Right? I mean, he, he kind of recalibrates by the time he writes Romans, but he's still <laughs> thinking it's soon, um, you know, in, in light of uh, the pending disaster. So for Paul, if Jesus is coming back next Tuesday, you've got other things to worry about than who's going to take you to the prom. Um, so that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I wish all people were like I am, which means celibate. And then he goes on, you know, but it's better to marry than to burn with passion. You know, if you can't keep it in your toga, then fine, go get married. But there are other things on which you should set your mind, like the end of the world as you know it. <laughs> now, okay, so Jesus didn't come back. If he had, we would not be having this conversation because well, everything certainly. would be perfect. Right? But he didn't come back. Um, so then the church had to figure out what we do in that light. And they're still stuck with Paul. And they're still stuck with other passages in the New Testament, which are promoting uh, virginity, virginity and celibacy and continence, like the book of Revelation, where the numbers saved are 144,000 Jews who have not known a woman, men who have not known a woman. But they're all members of the tribes of Israel. So, you know, most of my Gentile friends are out anyway. Um, <laughs> yes. and, and, and all women are out. Um, so. What the church already did is recalibrate. By the time you get up to the pastoral epistles, first and second Timothy and Titus, they're basically saying, you know, if you're a widow, get married, make babies. Let's get you back into some husband's control, by the way. Um, so they've always been wrestling with issues of celibacy because that's how people enact their religion. And, and the weird thing was the more the church talked about celibacy and virginity and continence, the more the synagogue said, get married, make babies. So that this whole celibacy thing pretty much drops out of Judaism. We don't have Jewish nuns. Right. 
um, it, they're continuing to wrestle with sexuality and they're also wrestling within a ancient Near Eastern context and a Roman context. And in the Roman context, uh, sex was you know, primarily to make citizens for the state. You got married to make babies so that they could serve Rome. Well, what do you do if you don't wanna serve Rome? So all of these questions enter into Paul's discussion and Paul, like Jesus, like the author of Leviticus, they're all products of their time. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when my friends say to me, gee, AJ, you know, Leviticus 18 and 20 is against homosexuality and Paul is against homosexuality. Um, the fr- and, and you had cited Genesis 1, like, you know, let's all be happily married heterosexuals. Um, it, it, there are various ways of responding to that. Um, I think the Bible really is a heterosexist text. Um, I also think it approves of slavery. You know, there, Most certainly. <laughs> there are many things in the Bible that I'm not real happy about. But that doesn't mean we should be stuck with the Bible and that's it. Mm. Because if we're stuck with the Bible and that's it. That means God has had nothing more to say over the past 2000 years. Mm-hmm. And that's not a helpful reading. And, and meaning arises in the interaction between the individual and the scriptures. Mm. So the scriptures require interpretation. Here, Jews have an advantage because we have an ongoing system of interpretation from the Mishnah to the Talmud to the medieval rabbis to contemporary responsa. It's the problem of those, those conservative Protestants who are sola scriptura. You know, if it's not in the text, I'm not going to do it. Well, you know, there aren't any bathrooms in the text, but that hasn't stopped people from inventing indoor plumbing. Yes. Um, you know, there are, it doesn't talk about microwaves. I mean, there are many things that, that we can add on. Um, so what we have to do is figure out what texts are to be put to the forward and what texts are to be put down. And Jesus is helpful here. Love of God, love of neighbor. Yeah. That's the greatest commandment. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's the law and the prophets. I mean, yeah. sort of, he sums it up. Uh, his fellow Jews would have agreed, by the way. Um, when people tell me that Genesis is against homosexuality because God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Um, well, you know, God created Steve too. Um, <laughs> and, and what I'm inclined to do for people who want to make those arguments is take a page out of the Jesus playbook. Um, Cause I think he's a very smart reader and I think he's a very good Jewish reader. So Jesus actually forbids divorce and he's not doing it because, you know, Jewish men are throwing women out on the street and therefore they're forced to turn to prostitution or begging. He does it because he says that's not the way God set it up. Right. God made this match. Um, So and that is why a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh is citing Genesis chapter two. Okay, so first of all, that's a relationship that God brought together. I don't think all marriages were brought together by God. (laughs) So then you have to go backtrack that one. (laughs) Um, But what he does is he uses Genesis to trump Deuteronomy because Deuteronomy says you can get divorced. So I put Genesis up against Deuteronomy and Genesis Genesis wins. wins. Okay. Well, by that same logic, um, Leviticus says you male person, there's nothing about lesbianism in the old Testament. You know, if you're a lesbian in the old Testament, you're good to go. Uh, Because for the old Testament sex, sexual act means involving a penis. If there's no penis, there's no sex. And therefore there's no problem. Um, So we'll put lesbians aside for the moment. Um, The Genesis Leviticus says you male person shall not lie with a man, the lyings of a woman. Now, if the text had just said, don't put your penis in the following locations, then we would know what it means. But now we got to figure out what it means. So I'm already like, I don't want to make a law on something and I'm not actually sure what it means. I think it means don't engage in anal sex, but I'm not sure. But let's say that it does. Well, taking the page out of the Jesus playbook, Genesis says it is not good for the human being to be alone. 
And after all of Genesis one, it was good. It was good. It was fabulous. It was terrific. And suddenly you get this not good. Well, if it's not good for the human being to be alone, why would I condemn a gay person to a life of singleness and celibacy? Genesis trumps Leviticus. Hmm. So there are various other ways of looking at this text. Is that what the author of Leviticus intended? No. Yeah. But the author of Leviticus is not here. We are. And it is our responsibility to read the text in a way that we create healthy people um, who has, as Jesus puts it, life abundant. And if we stifle ourselves, then we will not have life abundant. Hmm. That's so helpful. I think because it, it rubs up against, and again, I love that that Jewish people have a, have frameworks because I think what I've experienced and how I think modern purity culture for Christians says is that is this thing where it's like, yeah, it's if it's not in the Bible, it's not there. But if it is in the Bible, we might be like, ooh, I don't know about that because we don't want to look bad. But I think that that phrase that you used, we're not sure what it means, so we're not going to make a, a law about it. I think Christians have taken a lot of liberties to say, eh, we don't know what this means, but we know what we like, or we know who we are, or we know what will bring power and control. And so there are ways that sexual purity principles for Christians have largely centered around guessing and then enforcing that guess and then in enforcing that guess over and over and over again, creating shame that makes people hate themselves and that gives no framework for how to actually be biblically literate in any way because we don't have a framework where we can say this text trumps this text it, because that becomes, at least in my conversations growing up, an issue of like apologetics and like, does the Bible contradict itself? Which feels like such an annoying question when the Bible isn't trying to be in conversation with itself in the way that Christians want it to be. And so I appreciate that you've given a different frame for that because it gives us some space to go, maybe we could look at this without abandoning the Bible completely, but by being people who sit in the primary principles of what the scriptures are trying to teach us rather than, or trying to make us, help us think about rather than just kind of falling into proof texting or things that mostly prove that we don't know what we're talking about. Uh, well, we're, we're all going to do that anyway. We're all going to have our go-to verses or what what scholarship sometimes calls a canon within a canon. Yes. Right. These are the texts we put in 40-point font, and these are the texts we put in two-point font. The ones we put in two-point font, we okay, they're there, but we don't pay any attention to them. The people who are reading the text to say it's against certain things, I don't think they're reading incorrectly. I think they're reading through their own lenses, but we're all going to do that anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the question becomes, what arguments might one use uh, for people who are you know, unable to move because they feel so guilty Mm -hmm. um, or beating themselves up all the time and who operate out of fear of God rather than out of love of God. Mm -hmm. So how do we have a more wholesome reading of the text? Um, And how do we incorporate that wholesome reading in what we know about other things? Because the text is is not all in all. I mean, we have science and we have sociology and we have personal knowledge and we have our own interior feelings. Um, And I don't think we should be turning ourselves into knots because what we know from everything else does not fit what the Bible says. We know the sun doesn't stand still. Um, and we know we don't have a geocentric universe. I mean, at least most people know. Um, <laughs> and, and if you don't, you're probably not going to have a conversation. They're not going to be listening to you. No, well, certainly, certainly no not going to be listening to me. <laughs> um, so how, how do we better interpret the text so that it becomes life-giving? Um, and, and that requires actually full knowledge of the text. And it also says to people who would not interpret the way we do, and heaven knows there are a lot of people who do not interpret the way I do, 
at least to say, okay, you two are in the image and likeness of God. You're not an idiot. You're not a demon. <laughs> um, I see where you're getting it. Now, let me see if I can make a counter argument and see how, since we're all interested in human wholeness at the end, how can we work together on this? And what's the outcome of your reading? And that has to be done in respect, even for people who come up with, with comments from the Bible that, that I find harmful and hateful. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that many of the, at least as I've experienced a lot of Christianity, because of the kind of hierarchy and authority structures that exist, there actually isn't room for dialogue. There is a person who sits in at the pulpit or at whatever space and speaks the word down to people. And so there's never, we're never really taught how to dialogue or how to say, hey, uh, my reading might come up against your reading. And as we wrestle with that reading, we come to more fullness or more understanding of our own experiences and interpretations and of others. And I think because we don't know how to do that, it's actually really hard to do those core commandments of loving God and loving neighbor because our depth of love for God never changes because it's more about seeking quote unquote truth, I guess, rather than a wrestling kind of engagement that isn't, it isn't always just a matter of life and death, because I think that so much of Christianity requires that the text be a critical matter of life and life and death in which you find the truth and therefore avoid eternal damnation or something. And so I think it just becomes very complicated when we don't have those skill sets at all. Yeah, I, I think that's because Christianity, for the most part, jettisons its Jewish background. Um, so what, what do you do if you're a Jew? You wrestle. I mean, that's what Israel etym etymologically, right? The traditional yeah. etymology is Israel means to wrestle with God. This is Jacob's renaming after that business at the Jabbok River, where he actually winds up getting a groin pull. Um, and he's got that for the rest of his life. So, I mean, so you wrestle with God, um, it, it, which means you have to do it in community, right? So Jews, we, we do this in community. It's not a top-down thing. Um, rabbis are rabbis because they've studied more than the rest of us and they're supposed to know more, but that doesn't stop me from, if I don't have a disagreement with my rabbi, at least once a month, one of us is not doing our job. <laughs> yes. Um, and when we look at rabbinic sources, they say, give us another reading, give us another reading. And some of which are mutually exclusive. Now, the reason we can do that is because we are not just a religion. We are also a people, mm -hmm. you know, with a homeland and a language uh, and a common descent from Abraham and Sarah and all the way down, right? Um, you can convert in, but then you get to be a member of the people and get all the rights and responsibilities as everybody else. Um, but at the end of the day, we're all still Jews. Yeah. Now, if you get into a system by belief that's detached from ethnicity and detached from a homeland um, and detached from a, a, a anything, you just get in by water and spirit, right? This is Jesus talking. Yes, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, if you get in just by that, then you can't argue, because if you get in by belief, you get out by belief. So at the mm. same time, Christians aren't arguing. One of the reasons they're not is because they're worried about stepping into heresy. Mm. Now, it seems to me, and I say this as an outsider, um, that Christians ought to take their baptism more seriously. <laughs> you know, it's not quite as obvious as circumcision would be you know, for male Jews. <laughs> Most um, certainly. <laughs> right? But it's there, and it should be just as indelible. As, as being a member of a new family. Baptism doesn't wash off, right? It's, it's not like one of those fake tattoos. It's there forever. So Christians should be able to wrestle with each other and wrestle with the text rather than just saying, gee, I don't agree with you. I think I'm going to go found a new denomination. <laughs> um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's a failure of understanding what Paul would call the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. And sometimes parts of the body don't work well together. Right? Um, the mind wants to do one thing and the body wants to do something else. 
my fingers want to knit, but my legs want to run. You know, I'm in competition with each other. My stomach is growling, but I got this paper to finish. Yeah. Um, so you wind up, you, you try to figure out how to work together. Um, and Christians have not been quite as good at that. Not that Jews have been terrific at it, but I, I think we've got to continue the body imagery a leg up because we've got this national identity. Yeah, that holds us together. And we've got a sense that we're all responsible for reading the text. When it comes to belief in God, I don't think that remains static. I think the more you study, um, the more you read the Bible, the more you engage it with fellow members of the community, the more your love of God, your knowledge of God can grow. Mm -hmm. You're not going to get fully there. Yeah. You simply can't. Our, our brains can't, can't deal with that. But just as the love you might have for your partner can grow, the more you know your partner, the more you find out about your partner, yeah. uh, the more your partner says stuff to which you would interact. I think the more you interact with the Bible, the more your love can grow. And part of that love means wrestling. Yeah, It means saying, I don't like this. Or saying, to quote the Psalms, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is yeah. another way of saying, where are you? Things are not good. <laughs> yes, That's also a form of love. And it's, it's the love of God. God can withstand that, of course. So can your partner, if your relationship's good enough. Yeah. Yes. And I think that that is such a, and I think that intersects back with some of like the Christian purity culture stuff and that it makes God a fragile being that cannot engage with our questions, with our wrestling, with our disagreement, with our disdain or dislike of things as we see them or understand them. And because we never have that model, like with other people in community, it makes sense that a lot of Christians would be like, Ooh, everything is critical all the time. And it, it feels like an exhausting way to live and a really unmotivating, unjoyful way of engaging with the scriptures because it says that every reading is the ultimate reading. Every, every act is the ultimate act. Everything you do is the ultimate thing. So then when Christians specifically say like, well, sexual morality or calling it purity is the ultimate thing, then to think about, to talk about, to engage with, to ask questions is to do what you're, <laughs> what you're talking about is to enter a system by belief and to be exited for belief in the same way. And so I think I, I wish the same thing that Christians would take our baptisms more seriously because it would actually invite us into identity and to let things like purity, if we were to understand it more contextually, historically, functionally, would actually allow us to love neighbor better and to have that as a frame of loving neighbor rather than just, and like thinking about human dignity and well-being rather than just, does my individual body sit with God anymore? Or does it not? And I think we're just given so many models that it's not through those kinds of toxic ways of thinking. And it's the two point font model that's getting you there rather than the 40 point font. So it's like straining your eyes to which Jesus would say, you know, don't worry about the beam, in the, the speck in your neighbor's eye, get the beam out of your own, right? Yes. Um, all this judgmental stuff runs completely contrary to the text. Don't judge. Yeah. Right? yeah. Because if you judge, you're going to get judged by the same, same category. Don't do that. Yeah. Deal with yourself, right? Yes. If you see your neighbor doing something wrong, that, that's actually Leviticus 19.18. It's the run-up to love your neighbor as yourself, right? So you, if you see your neighbor doing something wrong, you got to rebuke your neighbor, right? Don't shoplift, right? Don't do drugs. Right? Yeah. Um, things you might say to a teenager. Or whatever. Yeah. Don't, do, don't cheat, yeah. you know, she says as the teacher. Um, <laughs> and that's a form of loving your neighbor as yourself. So there is a sense of responsibility. Yeah. But it's not a sense of, of like big brother watching you over you every single minute to see if you have a lustful thought. Mm -hmm. That's not the point. If the major point is love your neighbor as yourself, then you would want to treat your neighbor sexually. 
as you would want to be treated yourself. And that should be with respect and with care. And if it comes to intimacy with love and commitment, rather than, gee, I think, you know, I'm horny tonight. I think I'm going to go to a bar and try to get laid. Yeah. Um, so there are certain parameters here, um, in, in Genesis, um, Adam and Eve, after they eat the fruit, right? The first thing they realize is that they're naked, mm-hmm. which strikes me as it's kind of bizarre that they didn't yeah. notice that before. Yes. Like, oh, Adam, you know, who knew? Um, it, so what they get is maturity. They're no longer like little kids. Little kids can run around naked and say, mommy, wipe me at a dinner party. And it's, it's kind of yeah. cute. You know, if they do that when they're 14, that then it's a problem. Um, yes. so what they get is modesty. And they realize that there are certain things that should not be shared with everybody else. And there are certain things that are gifts. Um, but it's not, it, it, it's not a system that's meant to induce guilt at all. The rabbinic tradition comes on to say, um, Adam and Eve, recognizing that they did something wrong, come to God and repent. And God says, absolutely, I accept you. And therefore, when your children come to me and repent, there's, no, there's none of this Adam and Eve guilty stuff running all the way through. Yeah. Um, and because Christians associated um, Adam and Eve original sin with the sexual act, right? What's original sin? So go back to St. Augustine, who had some very, very smart things to say. And a few things that I you know, would say, gee, you know, Augie, could you rephrase this? <laughs> um, you know, suggested that um, when Adam and Eve ate that fruit, which is not an apple, I think it's a banana, but the, you know, you can do whatever you want with it. <laughs> it is tropical. It's got to be warm. Um, so Augustine suggested that when they ate that fruit, that a change was wrought in Adam's body such that, as Augustine put it, his seed became vitiated, which basically means his sperm got messed up. Yeah. And original sin functions as a DNA marker. So anytime anybody has sex and conceives, that's original sin coming along with it. That's not a great way of saying, boy, sweetie. You know, that was great last night. Yeah. Um, Yikes. And it only comes in with Christianity. If you look at Jewish reception history of Adam and Eve, it's it's wonderful. Um, before Jesus, the book of Tobit in the Old Testament Apocrypha, mm-hmm. the Deuterocanonical text. Um, when Tobit gets married, um, uh, he, he's, he, prays, he talks about, you know, may our relationship be like Adam and Eve, where two people are meant to be helpers to each other. Yeah. We don't have that sense of Adam and Eve with the sex, with the guilt, with the, ugh, you know, yeah. in fact, after Genesis five, they disappear. We get a bunch of garden of Eden stuff, but Adam and Eve not in Judaism, yeah, not so much. Yeah. yeah. So figure out where you want to put the focus. Yeah. And that's, and again, that, I think that even that frame is so helpful because many of us are, are taught that because we're like inherently sinful and cannot trust ourselves that because of Adam, it's like, we may not say we not. I I do not know many Christians who could name the framework that you're the interpretive the interpretation that you're giving for like this Augustine kind of interpretation. But I hear the thread of it and kind of the echo of it as a forty point font thing, which is like Adam was sinful, sin is here forever. You're inherently sinful and bad. Therefore, like fight yourself constantly for the sake of love of God, which feels so unhelpful. And, and even when I look at Jesus, I just don't see, I don't see that. And so it feels strange to me that we can take what for Christians should be the like highest font of all things, like the life and way of Jesus, and then truncate it into this like, well, but you're really bad. And like, Jesus makes some exceptions for people in, you know, in the gospels, but for you, you need to like, like, I, I remember having some students in one of my, the community chapters I was leading with campus ministry, who would like, had this like masturbation accountability groups. Like anytime they would masturbate, they would like buy each, like they would have to buy the rest of the guys in the group a burrito. And I was like, I don't understand 
how you understand God and community in such a way that this is helpful, but you just see yourself as like so bad that you have to punish yourself in a way that like benefits your friends to like do this other thing. And so the amount of like ways that we try to make good a thing that has never had good consequence feels so strange to me. Yeah. Did you ever ask them what verse told them that they weren't supposed to masturbate? <laughs> I mean, I usually start with that. Like, you know, where do you get that? <laughs> you well, know, the Bible says, what, where does it say it? Um, and then after that, why does it say it? You know, what, what's the concern behind it? Um, not everything the Bible says people do. Uh, Jesus says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. And, I, you know, I'm not, I'm seeing, a, you know, people wearing masks, but I'm not seeing a whole lot of like eye patches. And I'm pretty sure that every once in a while, somebody has done something offense. Like you look at something and think you get greedy or you get lustful or whatever. Um, you know, if your foot causes you to stumble, lop it off. That's just going to make you stumble more, by the way. That's it's awkward. Um, so what verses are they looking at? Mm -hmm. And why are they thinking that that's part of love of God and love of neighbor? Love of neighbor and, and love of stranger um, means, you know, being welcome and being hospitable and being kind. It doesn't mean making sure that you keep your hands from being between your legs. That's just kind of weird to me. Yes. Yes. And it feels a lot like what I experienced was a lot of students coming to me and being like, well, my youth pastor said, and I'm like, when, especially now I'm like, I'm 31. When I look back at like youth pastors that I know that were like for sure 25 when they were like 25 single seminary trained, but not even seminary trained, Bible college trained, which is like its own other category of chaotic interpretation. I was like, okay, yeah, your youth pastor said this thing to you, but what about that person's words are so deeply impacting that you can jettison the text and what it does or does not say and superimpose Pastor Mike's view of what you should or should not do with your body onto your view of God and neighbor. And it seems like Pastor Mike's interpretation is actually not helpful for you and your sense of self at all. So what do we do with that? And I think those questions of like, what is it? What is the concern that the text is trying to engage with? feels like a much more helpful frame than what is the text telling you to do? Because I think that Christians skip all of the, often skip all of the, and this is how I was taught to interpret the Bible was skip all of the in-between and just ask, what does it mean? Like, what does it mean for my life today? And without doing all of the work beforehand, we end up with like, don't masturbate, don't have sex, don't look at people, don't, you know, like don't have sexual feelings, don't, you know, engage with your body in certain ways that, again, I've said it a lot, just don't feel helpful. You no, know, and, and it, you get to the point with some people where, you know, so they're married, they did everything right. You know, they, they had their purity ring, then they got their engagement ring and they got their wedding ring and they got married, you know, and, and the bride wore white, whatever. Um, and then, you know, they get into bed and they lie back and they think about Jesus. Um, I, you know, it, you can do that, but I don't think it's quite giving that that moment of, of sublime intimacy quite the interaction, you know. Why do you need three people in the bedroom? You know, let them look on from a distance. It's fine. Um, it, I think it's, I think it's denying in part for Christians um, the sacrifice of the Christ. If people are just so struggling, um, not not to do certain things, like not to masturbate. I think it, it's, masturbating is kind of like pooping. I mean, I think people just do it, right? Um, babies do it. Um, uh, it, it's it's denying the sacrifice of the Christ. That, that's supposed to set you free. It's not supposed to chain you up. Yeah. Um, God sets you free. That's the, that's the whole Exodus from Egypt thing, right? Yeah. Like you were enslaved. You're not enslaved anymore. Go out and make sure that other people aren't enslaved. Don't 
you know, but what we wind up doing is, is we start policing ourselves because at least we think we have some sort of control there. Yeah. So it's that, it's that fear of master. Well, if I don't masturbate, then I'm in control. Right. I think there was a friends episode about this at one point. Um, uh, and, and, that's the same thing as people who worry about what eating disorders, if I can control what comes into my, now I'm in control. Mm. Um, But that it's such a a severe control um, that it leads to to danger. It leads to harm to the body. It leads to harm to the spirit. Um, And it's a control that's shackling rather than a sense of control of freedom. Yeah. You wind up policing your body and that's, you should be honoring it, not policing it. Yes. And that when we police our own bodies in that way, we assume that if we are doing what we think God intends for us to do, that God is this ultimate divine policeman who, which then obviously we can have a much longer conversation about how then Christians view policing and all of those implications, but that is far a different time. But it just feels to me like such a disservice to our quest to love God more if the, if the primary framework that we have, the primary title we have really is like, enforcer or policeman or just like that god's always trying to order things in like a a way that keeps us from yeah from all of that right that those metaphors are really helpful um enforcer uh police officer slave master Mm -hmm. and and once we think start thinking of god in those terms um then that should cause us to take a step back yes um police officer i'm sometimes okay with because Police officers can be, police officers can be enormously helpful under certain circumstances. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure where slave master gets to be helpful under any circumstance, but the yeah. slave master is the slave master because the slave master has complete control over the body of the slave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I recently talked to Dr. Willie James Jennings, and we were talking about how yeah that kind of plantation mentality that white men often bring in their kind of Christianity down to. Yeah, that kind of slaveholder mentality saying like, well, God is like this, therefore we are like this, therefore other people can be subjugated. And so when we kind of cross that, if people can be subjugated and controlled, then women become commodities, queer folks become, you know, like so far away from God that we can't even imagine them in the, in as neighbor, right? There's all, I feel like there's all kinds of things that happen when we start to turn people into objects or property, which I think that the, like that the Old Testament has a lot to say about, like not turning people into objects and creating spaces that form dignifying worldviews for your neighbor and for the community that I think that as I think about like ritual purity and like life and death and all of those things, almost all of those things that I can, at least that I can see in my very <laughs> small exploration of things lead toward a greater dignifying of neighbor or respect for neighbor, dignifying of our relationship with God and respect for our relationship with God that transforms our view of self in a way that isn't just giving ourselves like pain and kind of like a spiritual masochism that we somehow think is holiness or something. Right. Or to, to come up with rituals that, one, that can be done by an individual, um, but also by community, because people who say I'm spiritual but not religious very often lack community because mm-hmm. spirituality is on your I'm, I'm more religious and not spiritual. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, so certain rituals like um, Jewish women celebrating Rosh Chodesh, the new moon. Um, which, um, and those rituals have been going on for a very, very long time. They probably had their origins in paganism, but you can borrow stuff. You can borrow Christmas trees. You can borrow rituals, whatever. Um, uh, to say that I'm, I'm celebrating the cycles of a woman's body. 
um, or to celebrate through ritual immersion through the mikvah changes in the body. So I'm about to go through um, gender reassignment surgeries. You mark that as a celebration. Um, and you invite your friends and, and you say, look, I, I am, this is, this is me now. And I'm claiming that identity. Um, so if we can find some ways of, of ritualizing what the body does in a good way, yeah. um, then we're better able to celebrate the body rather than you know, try to hide it or, or try to police it in such a negative way. But at the same time, I do think we ought to control it. I mean, I don't, again, I don't think we ought to rut like rabbits. I simply, and I have, my son is your age. Um, and, you know, the, I don't want to police him, but I, I, you know, I don't want him calling up and saying, well, mom, one night stand and now I'm responsible. Because that's not a relationship that's done in love and respect. Mm. Yeah. Well, that, I think that matters a lot, even as we have this, because we're starting a really broad conversation on purity culture. And I think that what often happens in my experience is that when people start deconstructing purity culture or deconstructing their faith in general, we kind of jettison ethics ethics as a starting point. And so I think what I'm hearing you say in some ways is like, ethics matter and like how we treat each other <laughs> matters. And that oftentimes when, we're, when we experience freedom as a freedom from critical ethics that help us to respect and dignify people in ourselves, which I think is really, really important. <laughs> I mean, you can start with the old Hippocratic model. It's not biblical, but it's not a bad idea. Do no harm. You know, start there. <laughs> You're yes. probably ahead of the curve. Um, uh, don't judge other people. That's not your job. Yeah. Um, when you read the Bible, notice that you're always interpreting what you read and you're always deciding what's going to be in two point font and what's going to be in 40 point font. Um, if Jesus didn't have anything to say about it, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's good or it's bad. It just means it's it's no information whatsoever. Yeah, they didn't say anything. (laughs) Right. But we do know that he had a lot of things to say about stuff that he thought was important. Masturbation ain't one of them. Yes. Um, Um, so Think about the body as given to us, I, I think, um, not as something to be tested, yeah. as if there's always this test, the test, is, it's always there because those parts of us are always there. And if I touch them, ah! um, it, God doesn't give us a body to test us. That's not mm. the point. Um, we're in the image and likeness of God. God's, God gives us a body to honor and to mm. celebrate. And if we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, you know, Paul's point then is don't go to prostitutes. I'm okay with that. You know, um, although I do think prostitution should be legalized, but that's a whole other question. Um, uh, Treat your body with respect and therefore treat other people's bodies with respect, but don't get all judgmental about it and celebrate what your body does. If you can ejaculate, God bless you. Good for you. You know, if if you're menstruating, terrific. You know, and then we have to have, you know, you know, sanitary napkin equality and make sure you get something to help you. Um, if you're if you're ready to have a baby, make sure you're ready to have a baby, and it comes about not by accident. Yeah. Um, uh, c- celebrate intimacy like the Song of Songs celebrates intimacy. Celebrate int- intimacy if you're my age or if you're old enough to be my great grandmother. Because if you still got it, God bless you. <laughs> what a gift! So that, good. That seems like a much better way of doing it. I absolutely agree. And I think that that, yes, what if our morality didn't have to make us feel terrible 
all the time? What if our ethics didn't have to make us feel terrible all the time or be just so complicated? I feel like having the right frames helps us to live a little more freely, like you were talking about before. And I think you've given us some frameworks. So then as we close, I know that your work is vast and your writing and teaching so impactful, but I was wondering today if you would close, instead of plugging those things, by plugging or expressing how you do what I think you do differently than so many others, which is invest in interfaith work with hope in the way that you do. So can you please tell me a little bit about why you do that and what that looks like as we finish out today? So if Jews are going to love Christians, we need to know something a little bit more than this incessant insistence on purity culture um, and Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. There's got to be more than that. And if Christians are going to love Jews, it has to be more than a very narrow reading of Leviticus, um, a production of Fiddler on the Roof, uh, the State of Israel and the Shoah. Yeah. And I think the more I study Christianity, the better Jew it makes me, because mm. Christian history is part of Jewish history. And I found that for my Christian students, the more they study the Old Testament and Jewish interpretation of the Old Testament, the better able they are to appreciate bodies, the better able they are to argue amongst themselves, uh, the better able they are to see that law always needs to be interpreted. The laws of slavery in the Old Testament change um, so that by the time you get to the latest iteration of the law code, it's basically impossible for an Israelite to own another Israelite because that's what love your neighbor as yourself means. So then you have to extend that to the next line and say, well, you can't, therefore you can't own a stranger either. Yeah. That would be the next step. And the Bible says, okay, we'll go in there. Your job to take that next step. So we read together. We hold on to our own traditions. You don't sacrifice your religion on the altar of interface sensitivity. Yes. <laughs> yes. You explain stuff that other people don't understand. Yeah. Like Jewish purity laws and how those functions within, within an Orthodox Jewish community. Yeah. Um, and then you say, well, here's what I think is important. And somebody says to you, why? That's a really good question, because then you stop going on automatic and you actually start thinking about what you believe in, how you practice. Yeah. And that's a gift, too. Yes, such a good gift. Well, I want to honor your time and just am so grateful for you having this conversation with me. I know there's a lot of things you could be doing with your time. So to <laughs> chat with me and to my my get my all the people who listen to the podcast is is so good. And I'd love to continue in dialogue as, as much as we are able. I, 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 when you invited me, of course, I looked you up um, and I thought, yeah, I like what you do a lot. So I am honored to be able to talk with you. I've, it's been invigorating for me because I think you ask the questions that need to be asked. And that's so good and so refreshing. So thank you for your time. Yeah, anytime. And I okay. will. Yeah, let's interface sometime again soon. Do it again and hope the technology works. My God. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you again for listening to Reclaiming My Theology. We are honestly so ready to take a break for the summer, but I do have one more episode out later this week with my friend and author, Jonathan Martin. Our conversation is about what it's like and what it takes to walk away from the faith and communities that have formed us and how we find ourselves on the other side of it. It's been really helpful for me and has been a balm to my soul, so I really hope that as you go into the summer that it will be a beacon of hope in the midst of some increasingly challenging times. I know that makes me sound just about as Christian as I am, but I really do care about this stuff and hope that we can continue throughout the summer to do a little bit better together.